0: but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hey, I wanted to tell you about another show you might like. Unpacked by Afar is the acclaimed weekly podcast that discusses the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry. It's a show that'll help you plan your next adventure outdoors or across the globe. This season, Unpacked host and experienced travel writer Aislinn Green is traveling across North America to give you the best tips for your next trip. You'll also hear from seasoned travelers and industry professionals on how to hack travel rewards programs and what experiences should be on your must-do list. Don't miss out. Follow Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts.
1: When Liat was maybe five or six years old, she planted a tree. It was an outing with the whole family, her parents, her older sister, her baby brother. She doesn't remember the day, but she's got the pictures.
2: In one of the photos I'm standing with all of my family members, it looks like we must have just planted trees. My sister and I um, are holding, I don't know what you call that tool, maybe a spade or something to, to dig a hole in rocky soil and um, we're posing for the camera.
1: And the family is gathered around one of those young trees, a pine sapling, dark green, bushy, maybe two feet tall, right in the center of the photo.
2: I know, yeah, that photo is so funny. It looks, it literally looks like I'm growing out of that pine sapling. Like both of us are quite young and both of us seem to be like really enjoying the strong Mediterranean sunlight. And yeah, it looks like we're both sort of merged in that photograph. Liot, Liat
1: Berdugo, is a writer, curator, and assistant professor of art and architecture at the University of San Francisco. And in an article published in January 2020 for Places Journal, Liat actually brought a kind of artistic questioning to bear on her own family
2: pictures, the pictures of the day when they planted the trees. The picture definitely looks posed like... Um... The sapling I've planted looks like it was planted really poorly, like the hole wasn't deep enough, and the soil looks so rocky. Um, I remember asking my dad, after I saw the photo, whether I was actually able to dig that hole myself, like it actually just looks quite challenging. And without even thinking, he said, no, I dug it for you. Oh, wow. So so even in the photos, there's this, um, they bring up this sense of like, what. What agency means, like, did I do that thing? What's really happening in this photo? Did my parents want me to do that thing? Why would her family bring her there to do this? Did they want me to do it enough that they did it for me? I mean, what are the implications of of family and history and agency, even in these pictures, comes up for me when I look at them?
1: And why would she even be asking these questions about planting a tree? After all, planting a tree is almost a shorthand for doing a good deed. A new tree is a positive act in the world. But in this case, as the years went by, Liat came to see that forest, and forests like it, as part of a project. A project that included her and her family, but that was also so much bigger.
2: I've been going through, I don't know how I would even describe it, but a process of coming to understand my own, my own responsibility for the situation Israel-Palestine Um, And that process has been ongoing. So I wouldn't say that that was like a singular moment, but it certainly was like one of these like tiny little heartbreaks along a journey where what I thought was true or what I thought to be the case turns out to be very different than how I see things now.
1: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Justine Paradise, in today for Sam Evans Brown. In Israel, Palestine, plants are political.
3: Groves, you know, fields, uh, trees
4: are also casualties. That's the line in the sand of sorts. That's the uh, conflict area.
1: And particular trees can become windows into history, tools of erasure, or symbols of resistance.
5: So environmentalists nowadays would like cringe.
4: (laughs) And we have to uh, fight back by staying put. And that is called sumud.
1: Today on the show, the olive and the pine. First, when Liat described the picture of herself planting that pine sapling, she put it in a very particular way.
2: It literally looks like I'm growing out of that pine sapling. That
1: in the photo, she and the tree appear merged. I don't think she put it this way by accident.
2: Liat was pointing to a theme, that trees and people are linked. There is a proliferation of Israeli names that mean tree, like Ilan or Ilana or Tamar or Tamara. Ilan, oak tree. Tamar, palm tree. This identification of trees with children in particular runs rather deep in Jewish-Israeli culture. Liat
1: grew up mostly in Philadelphia, but her dad's Israeli. She's a citizen of both countries too. And they'd often go to visit extended family in Israel. It was on one of those trips that they went to the Jerusalem forest to plant their pine trees.
5: Uh, Which is a very powerful act. People come, they plant a tree in their name, maybe in the name of someone they love who, are, who is not, uh, no longer here. And so they feel like they have a, a place uh, in that small edge of the world, even if they're not there personally.
1: This is Dr. Iruz Braverman. She's a professor of law an adjunct professor of geography at the University at Buffalo, the State University of New York. She's the author of Going on 10 Books, and in one of them, Planted Flags, Iruz draws out this point that in Israel-Palestine, trees can act as living representations of people, sometimes quite explicitly. Iruz herself was born in Jerusalem, and shortly after her birth, her parents received a certificate informing them that a tree had been planted in her name in the Peace Forest in Jerusalem. The certificate says, quote, "'We wish you the fortune of seeing it her grow with much pleasure and ease, this was written in Hebrew, which, as Erus writes in her book, uses a single pronoun to refer to both the child and the tree. On the certificate, Erus's growth and the growth of the tree are connected. There's another part of the Jerusalem forest at the western edge. It's called the Forest of the Martyrs. It's said that there are planted six million trees for the Jews murdered in the Holocaust. In her book, Eros notes that when children planted a stand of those trees in 1951, they were told, quote, Remember, children, that you do not plant trees, but people. The State of Israel was established in 1948, a few years after the Holocaust and the end of World War II. But tree planting started before that. Let me explain. The Jerusalem Forest, where Liat and her family planted their pines, was planted by the KKL JNF, Karen Kayemet Le
5: Israel, the Jewish National Fund. It all began in the year of 1901. Theodore Herzl was speaking in Basel, Switzerland, addressing the Fifth Zionist Congress. His goal, the immediate creation of a national fund, allowing the purchase of land in Israel and the reestablishment of a Jewish homeland.
1: His tool... The, the KKL JNF this- is a Zionist organization which in this context is referring to a political, national goal to create a Jewish state, Israel, in the land of Palestine. The KKLJNF created what was called the Blue Box, a little box that people might have had somewhere in the house where they'd put spare change to save up and donate to buy land and plant trees in the land of Palestine. The Blue Box is a symbol of the KKLJNF, and it functioned as a way to connect the diasporic community with the organization's goals.
5: By the Second World War, blue box numbers exploded to over a million. Land was repurchased, and the dream of a Jewish homeland realized.
1: The KKLJNF came to plant forests that were mostly, even exclusively, pines. Specifically, the Aleppo pine, Pinus halopsensis, also known as the Jerusalem pine. It's a species with silver gray to purple-brown bark, and it can grow tall with spreading branches if it's given the room. It's got long green pine needles that grow in sort of puffy clouds on the branches. It was chosen by early KKLJNF foresters for its perceived ability to withstand drought and for its adaptability. It can grow in both arid soils and soils rich in organic material. But a big reason was that like many pines, it grows fast and seeds prolifically. So they're termed a pioneer species.
5: Pines were seen as this pioneer uh, ecosystem where they can actually make something that is unproductive into something productive.
1: But pioneer has a second meaning here.
5: It's also a change in the identity of the Jew from this diasporic entity that works in, uh, in certain professions to being this person working, a pioneer working on the land.
1: Like the pine, Jewish Israelis were rooting, physically connecting with the land.
5: And the pine being a very European tree, creating a very European-looking landscape, something that a lot of European Jews who were coming from Europe, from a
2: traumatic experience, something that made them feel a little bit like home. Here's Liat again. Planting trees has almost been like a Zionist commandment. I mean, when I was a kid, I learned about the value of nature through the Jewish holiday of Tubi Shvat, which is the festival of trees. Um, and I learned all these songs about how we should be planting trees um, over our, our naked land, right? And this idea that the land was barren before, and now here, here come the Jews who can, um, who can make it bloom, is I, I think part of a
1: narrative... that Make the that- desert bloom. According to its website, KKLJNF has planted 250 million trees since its founding. And a lot of those early forests were essentially pine monocultures. These trees were part of the birth of a new nation, a narrative of growth and homeland after a deeply traumatic episode in a long, long history of anti-Semitic violence, violence that didn't end after World War II. But planting trees was not merely
2: symbolic. It was also strategic. This idea that um, trees are really innocent and benevolent and good, yet in this context in Israel-Palestine, I saw afforestation as a mode of colonization.
1: Here's Iris Braverman again.
2: If there aren't enough
5: people to settle the land, and, and, and there weren't so many Jews then, then in a way it's, it's easier to take over the land by planting trees so that nobody else can live there. And then protecting those trees so nobody can cut them. Also making any cutting be very visible so that you could monitor um, more easily and protect land from being settled by others.
1: And in fact, in Israel-Palestine, going back to the Ottoman Empire, Certain trees and certain forests have been afforded certain legal protections. When Israel was established, the pine was one of them.
5: So it's a kind of a mechanism, uh, although we don't think about trees that way. It's kind of a mechanism of taking over and protecting land when you don't have enough humans. So it's kind of a quasi, say, police officer standing there, right?
2: So I remembered planting these trees when I was a kid. I mean, I I knew that I had, I think because I had seen the pictures. Um, I didn't really think much of it until um, I read Al Weitzman and Fazal Sheikh's book, The Conflict Shoreline, that came out in 2015. And it referenced the fact, which was then unknown to me at the time, that a lot of the, the JNF KKL forests, which is where I planted my tree, have been systematically planted over the ruins of Palestinian villages.
6: Of course, trees form good cover. Uh, but also, uh, they, they promote the idea that we are here to make the desert bloom. As if, they, as if there was nothing there.
1: This is Jonathan Katab, an attorney and co-founder of the Palestinian human rights organization Al Haq. We talked over Skype on a pretty bad connection. So the forests, would you say they almost point to where the villages used to be?
6: Many times that is the case. Many times that
4: is the case.
3: When I was a child, they used to take us to an Arab village near Jerusalem where many people get, come to swim in a pool. There is a spring there, and there are, there are still houses standing with ruins. And I was, always felt there that um, this place has always been ruined.
1: That's Noga Codman. She's a researcher and author of a book called Erased from Space and Consciousness. Historically, some Westerners have seen Palestine as an empty land. After a visit in 1867, for instance, Mark Twain called Palestine, quote, desolate and unlovely. The British poet Thackeray described it as, quote, unspeakably ghastly and desolate. And even the KKLJNF's own materials make it sound like these places were unlivable before the planted forests.
6: It all
7: begins with a vision, a vision of lush and breathtaking forests where once was only rocky and brown land. A vision of transforming the Negev and the Galilee, injecting a vitality that is transforming them into places people want to live. A
6: vision for us to speak our values. Leaving no one... Transforming the land into a place people
1: want to live. But people did live there. I said earlier that Israel was established in 1948, but those words don't actually describe what happened. Broadly, if you're Israeli, you might call that period of 1947 to 48, the War of Independence. If you're Palestinian, you might call it al-Nakba, the catastrophe. During this time, 700,000 Arab and Palestinian people were displaced. And hundreds of villages depopulated and destroyed. At the time, the head of KKL JNF's forestry department was a man named Yosef Weitz. KKL JNF's website calls him the father of Israel's forests. In June 1948, in a memo to the government, Weitz wrote, Quote, We have begun the operation of cleansing, removing the rubble, and preparing the villages for cultivation and resettlement. Some of these will become parks. End quote. Earlier in 1940, Weitz had written in his diary, Amongst ourselves, it must be clear that there is no room for both peoples in this country. Not a single village or a single tribe must be left.
3: Uh, I I mapped all those villages that are now within uh, parks of the the, the Jewish National Funds, forests, national parks, and nature reserves. And I realized that uh, almost half of the villages are within such, such places now.
1: In the research for her book, published in 2015, Noga found that of the 418 villages depopulated and demolished during the 1948 war, a third are a part of some kind of park or nature site. And KKLJNF forests are planted over 86 such villages.
3: These ruins are 70 years old. They they become like part of nature, so it becomes like pretty. And but also sad at the same moment, when you know what was here. Um, and it's, it's very difficult to, there is this, this gap between what you know was here, a village full of people and children and, and animals and uh, activity, and, and then I was very, very silent and, and trees and shade and uh, some ruins. It's like a very different reality. It's hard to bridge.
1: The link between the pine tree and the Zionist project, as Iris puts it, is well known. And so the pine forests are sometimes specifically targeted, like in the first Intifada or uprising in 1989. Palestinians have either started fires in the forests or were blamed for them. And more recently, KKLJNF points to wildfires in the forests, sometimes ignited by kites and balloons carried from Gaza, filled with flammable gas or carrying explosives. KKLJNF practices have been controversial among Israeli environmentalists for decades. And they have changed in an ecological sense. Actually, Eros was involved in an aspect of this when she was working as an environmental lawyer in the late 90s at an organization called Adam Teva Vadin, or the Israel Union for Environmental Defense.
5: Basically, we decided to, to go to the Supreme Court to challenge the practices on an ecological basis. These pine trees,
1: that had been at least symbolically crowdfunded by a diaspora across the world, that were so good at growing quickly and pioneering, were also very good at acidifying the soil, attracting pests and therefore needing pesticides, catching on fire and out-competing other plants. Some describe these forests as quote, pine deserts. This has been known for decades and on its website, KKLJNF acknowledges the drawbacks of the Jerusalem pine. It writes that well in 2000, 45% of its trees were still pine. Alongside these, there were also broad-leafed species and fruit-bearing trees, including olives, carobs, and date palms, mixed forests. But while the KKLJNF has been forced to re-examine how and what it plants, as far as the villages themselves, they're barely acknowledged. I did reach out to KKLJNF asking about this. Their spokesperson sent a brief statement about their afforestation mission and their history, but didn't respond to my questions about the villages themselves. But in the forests, there are still traces of the villages. Here's Jonathan Kattab.
6: Yuri Davis used to take me around in the gallery and say, you want to see where the Arab villages used to be? Very simple. Look for any sign that says Jewish National Fund, and then look for the cactus trees, they will show you where uh, the villages used to be.
1: Look for the JNF sign and then look for the cactus. Because while a plant can be a symbol and can provide legal cover for appropriating land, they can also be monuments, living witnesses to history. Liat Perdugo again.
2: One thing that you may not know by looking at this picture is that prickly pear is widely used by Palestinians as a a natural fence. So it was a way to sort of um, mark off plots and prevent your herds from grazing past where you wanted them to, et cetera. So if the prickly pear was a fence, they become almost an outline of where the village once was, rising up in the forest. It often signifies um, the presence of a prior Palestinian village.
1: In Leot's article for Places Journal, she included a black-and-white photo of a prickly pear.
2: But basically what you see in this picture is you see this prickly pear and it's full of, of bullet holes. And those bullet holes are remnants of the massacre of the citizens of Duryacine, where they were lined up and shot by paramilitary forces in the 1948 war. I guess I, when I was working on this, this piece, I began to wonder, like, is my tree still alive? And if it's still alive, this is going to sound kind of woo-woo, but could, does my tree feel anything? Like, what traces would it bear of what it's been through? Um, would it sort of know how I felt about it now? And, you know, this is all kind of magical realist thinking, and I I don't think that it's useful to talk about trees in in that way all the time, but I I don't know, I couldn't help myself from sort of wondering that. And so when I found this image of Dari Yassin, where the the plants literally held the scars of what had happened to the the Palestinians in that village, I was really moved by it um, and horrified by it at the same time. That's the pine tree.
1: Now, the olive. That's after the break.
0: Hey, Nate here. Have you ever dreamed of going on the voyages of some of the most famous and not-so-famous explorers in history? If so, then you should check out the Explorers podcast. Host Matt Breen takes you into jungles and frigid wastelands, across deserts and oceans, and to the top of great mountains as you explore the triumph, glory, and tragedy of each explorer. There are extraordinary stories of Shackleton, Magellan, Cook, Lewis and Clark, and so many other daring people from all across the world and from throughout history. Each explorer's story is told in rich, immersive detail and each topic is given as much time as needed to tell the whole tale ranging from 30 minutes to 10 hours there's something for everyone find the explorers podcast wherever you get your podcasts or go to explorerspodcast.com to learn more
4: uh, a olive tree
6: this kind of a tree lives thousands of years, many centuries. It, it, it has very big roots.
1: This is Iyad Haddad. Last year, Iyad bought a piece of land in the countryside, a plot with five olive trees, and for their first harvest season on the land.
6: This is our weekend.
1: He and his wife and children would go out for the whole day.
6: With our T-shirts, with our uh, shoes, special shoes, and we got it special tools to harvesting uh, the olives. They
1: laid special covers on the ground to collect the olives while they're harvesting. They'd take breaks to eat, making a small fire.
6: To prepare coffee or to prepare tea on the fire on the land, we cook tomato with the eggs.
1: Iyad is not growing olives to make a living. Again, their land has five olive trees, and they're just 25 years old. Each one, he told me, might produce a bottle of oil. But that's not really the point. Iad lives and works in Ramallah, which is near Jerusalem, in the West Bank. He works in the field of human rights.
6: I am a refugee. We, I born in a refugee camp with no land. So I feel how much uh, the difference between me as a refugee with no land or home comparing with a person who has a land and a home, especially when he has uh, an olive trees.
1: Owning this land, to be able to go out on the weekend with these olive trees.
6: It changed my life, really. I'm a 58 years old. Just in, in the last year, when I owned a land with olive trees, I feel that uh, I'm start my life. A, a, a magic, a kind of ma- magic of feeling. But imagine how much it means for the people who own the land from his father, grandfather since many, many, many years.
5: The idea that the olive tree and its uh, rooting into the ground, its hundreds of years of being there has come to symbolize and also physically be something that the Palestinian national identity is connected with. This is
1: Iris Braverman again, and actually this is the frame of her book, Planted Flags. She argues that in the same way that pine trees can represent people, so too can olives. The olive tree is an embodiment of a specific kind of resistance. In its very presence, an old olive tree, with its broad trunk and deep roots, demonstrates longevity and resilience. The presence of a tree points to a human presence that can go back hundreds, thousands of years. The olive tree is steadfast. In Arabic, the word for steadfast is called sumut.
4: And that is called Sumud, uh, persevering, holding on, refusing to give up.
1: This is writer and lawyer Raja Shahada. He's Palestinian, and he also lives in Ramallah.
4: It is a, a concept that I realized in, and uh, held on to from early early on in, in my experience with the occupation. In '82, I published a book uh, called The Third Way, in which I described Sumud and, and said in the book that uh, the Israeli attempt and the occupation of our country is an attempt to encourage people to leave the land. And we have to uh, fight back by staying put.
1: Staying put, rooting, ideas symbolized in the olive tree.
5: Then we see resistance poetry that refers to the olive tree. We see, um, we see how the economy is dependent on those periods of harvest.
1: According to a 2015 UN paper, olives account for 15% of the total agricultural income in occupied Palestinian territories, supporting 100,000 families.
5: And so the harvest period, which is um, about two months a year during the fall, is also a social
1: event. A time when families come together to harvest, just how Yad describes it. Harvesting olives by hand, pausing to brew coffee over the fire with his family. But today, for many Palestinian olive growers in the West Bank, this is not what the harvest looks like.
4: In my career, I've ended up knowing a lot about things I never thought I was going to know much about. I know much more about how to build a house than I thought I would. I know much more about olive trees than I ever thought I would. This is Rabbi Arik Asherman. Basically, what I do is uh, try to work for universal human rights, starting from the idea that in the Torah, in the Bible, that every human being is created in God's image, which means uh, both of Jews and of non-Jews.
1: Rabbi Asherman is the executive director of Torah Zedek, or the Torah of Justice. And for 21 years, he led the organization Rabbis for Human Rights, which organizes volunteers to accompany Palestinians to the olive harvest. To act as human shields because the olive harvest can be a time in the West Bank when violence
4: reaches a peak. It's not just the olive trees, but the fact is a relatively large percentage of land in Palestine is uh, covered by olive trees. There is a greater chance than almost anything else that attempting to access their lands will mean going to their olive trees, which can be right up to the fence of a settlement. And so that's the line in the sand of sorts. That's the uh, conflict area.
1: The conflict. Okay, I will try to be brief, but I think that some of us might need some context. In 1949, after the Arab-Israeli War, the powers came to an armistice. Between Israel and Jordan, they drew a demarcation line, a temporary border, for the sake of the agreement. It's called the Green Line, named for the color of the marker they used to draw it on the map. So in this agreement, administration of what's now called the West Bank, which includes Ramallah, was left to, and later annexed by, Jordan. In 1967, Israel invaded and captured several territories, including the West Bank. This is known as the Six-Day War. This is why people, including until recently the U.S. State Department, calls it the Occupied West Bank. Following this moment, about 300,000 Palestinians fled the area. Since 1967, hundreds of communities, known as Israeli settlements, have been constructed inside the Occupied West Bank, as well as highways to reach them, some for use only by Israeli citizens. These settlements are seen as illegal by the international community, including the U.N., the E.U., and until recently, the United States. There have also been sustained periods of Palestinian uprisings, or intifadas, the first in the late 80s, and the second much more violent in the early 2000s. I'll also add that I spoke to several settlers, including Miri Mozavadia, who works with the Binyamin Regional Council as spokesperson and head of the international desk. The Binyamin region is a region in the West Bank, which includes Ramallah, and she disputed most to all of what I just said. In her view, the West Bank is not under occupation, but simply a part of Israel. She would also call the West Bank by a different name, Judea and Samaria. And as far as the term settler,
7: I understand why people would call us settlers, and because of my work I'm used to speaking in this terminology, but in my daily life I don't define that doesn't define me. Other things do define me. I'm a mother. I'm a person who's very connected to nature. I'm an Israeli. I'm a feminist.
1: Miri was born in the region, and her kids are third generation. For her, this connection to the land begins thousands of years ago.
7: I'm an Israeli citizen. I live in a community that is recognized by Israel, legal by Israel. I follow the Israeli law. We pay Israeli taxes. Here in Israel, this community is considered no different than communities in other places around the country. Um, yes, there are differences in the daily life and challenges that we face because Israel has not yet extended its sovereignty over this regions, But we very much expect us, our government to do so. I think it's not going to happen now. It will happen one day. And we see this area as a... Um, Always been an important part of the land of Israel, an important place for the Jewish people, and will always remain that way.
1: But while some might call the territories disputed, Israel's Supreme Court has called it a belligerent occupation. I just want to pause here for a second because I think it took me a while to put meaning to those words occupied, military occupation. This is not a perfect metaphor, but I think the closest that an average American person might come to an encounter with being under armed state surveillance is going through airport security. Standing in line, having papers to prove your right to movement, your right to pass through the gate, and needing to carry them at all times, having your stuff gone through, maybe your body's patted down. This experience can feel a little or a lot scary, depending on how things go. You might feel like you could get in trouble without knowing what you're getting in trouble for. They can feel arbitrary. They can feel dehumanizing. Best-case scenario, it's inconvenient. Something to complain about. But imagine having to go through airport security maybe every day. Both when you expect it, like when you're crossing over the separation barrier, maybe to the other side of town through a security checkpoint to see family or going to the hospital. Or when checkpoints just pop up out of nowhere as they do in the West Bank, I'm told practically as a matter of routine. You don't know that you're free from surveillance until you're not.
6: If I want to summarize to you my life in one sentence, my life is an Israeli checkword.
1: That's Iyad Haddad again. This history, that I've just very briefly laid out is the context for why Palestinians and Israelis have lived in a state of tension and violence that's lasted decades. Iyad, by the way, has two master's degrees and a background in international law and nonviolent resistance. He's a field researcher for B'Tselem, an Israeli human rights and information center, which means he spends his days gathering eyewitness testimony, medical and government reports, and documenting encounters between Palestinians, settlers, and the Israeli army.
6: Sometimes we see bloody cases. I sometimes get in the frigidator to show bodies. I, and I attend sometimes autopsy.
1: Sometimes this means physically verifying the presence of bullet holes. Which brings us back to olives. Much of this conflict in the West Bank, these encounters that Iyad documents, they come to a head during the olive harvest season.
6: My name is Nidal Walid Rabia. I am a Palestinian. I live in a town called Turmusaya next to Ramallah in Palestine.
1: Nidal is a farmer and the chair of a Palestinian branch of Via Campesina, an international group that advocates for peasants' rights. He's lived abroad in Panama and Costa Rica and the United States. Unlike Iyad, whose olive trees are 25 years old, Nadal's olive trees have a long family lineage. My
8: grandfather's trees are around 100 from his great-great-grandparents, and they're around 1,000
1: to 1,500 years old. And ever since Nadal, by the way, speaks Arabic, Spanish, and English, but he had his granddaughter, Samira, translate for him. <laughs> Some of Nadal's trees are in his town, Termasaya, but others are much closer to nearby settlements. My grandfather has to have a schedule with them, with the settlers. He goes about once or twice a year. In fact, most of the land in the West Bank, which includes two-thirds of the agricultural land, is administered by Israel.
8: He can't go as he pleases like the trees he can go to that
1: are far away from the illegal settlements. Palestinian olive growers with trees close to the settlements can coordinate with the army to access them twice a year, during the harvest in October and November, and to plow in the winter. This, according to many people I spoke to, is not sufficient. And in some places, yields have been falling. Second, to reach the trees, a Palestinian farmer needs to get a permit, which also requires acquiring proof of ownership, documents held by the Israeli civil administration, which, by all accounts, makes it very difficult to obtain them. Plus, the owner of the land isn't necessarily the one actually picking
6: the olives. Imagine uh, if they uh, doesn't have a children or a youth, they need uh, a help from outside the family. So, how they can improve that they have a relation with the ownership? It's very hard.
1: Then once the farmer has the permit and has coordinated the schedule, it comes time to pass through security, which could mean the separation barrier, the wall between the West Bank and the Green Line.
6: There is a gate through a barrier. This process can be slow. One gate for the farmers to get through. Or
1: farmers might show up at the scheduled time and not be able to get through, as Batsalem has documented.
6: Waiting.
1: Maybe in the rain, in the heat
6: half an hour, one hour, two hours, whatever.
1: And once a grower does pass through the gate and gets to the olive grove, they don't know what they'll find there.
5: Israeli settlers, they come, they claim that this is their land. Uh, they, will, uh, they will burn olive trees. They will vandalize them. They will sometimes harvest them themselves. But, you, but usually it's, it's vandalism. Palestinian organizations like Arij say that uh, uh, almost a million olive trees have been uprooted that way since 1967.
1: And it's not just tree vandalism. Sometimes the settlers themselves will be there.
8: My grandfather, when he goes to visit his trees that are closer to the illegal settlements with the farmers as well, the illegal settlers and the soldiers come and cause trouble.
6: Sometimes they attacked by the settlers' groups. They came attacking you and hitting you, Uh, sometimes killing people.
1: All the settlers who I spoke with, including Miri Mozavadia, spokesperson for the Binyamin Regional Council, told me these are criminal acts. No question about it. She condemns the violence. Iris writes that who she calls the new settlers tend to represent a more religious, more conservative, and more extremist fringe.
5: For them, they don't see themselves as criminals. They, uh, they, they think they're doing the right thing by God, um, because it is for them. This is the promised land. But
1: B'Tselem does not call this settler violence. The organization calls it state-backed settler violence because of the incidents they've documented coming from both settlers and the army, and a corresponding lack of accountability. Because of a 2006 Supreme Court case, brought in fact by Rabbis for Human Rights, Israeli defense forces are legally obligated to protect Palestinian growers during the harvest. Because this pattern of violence is so pervasive, in fact, two months ago, the
8: settlers, they threw pepper tear gas at two of the farmers, and the soldiers also arrested those two farmers. They, the soldiers also wouldn't let the farmers and my grandfather harvest their land, so they would take them out and they wouldn't let them come back in.
1: And you yourself um, came into contact with, um, with violence. It's, on, it's sort of famously on video. Um, can, you, can you tell me about this encounter?
4: I mean, I mean, there's been many cases of violence. I've, I often say that I've, I've uh, been uh, attacked by settlers, beaten up by Israeli security forces, and I've had my car stoned by Palestinians. It can kind of, things can come from all directions.
1: Rabbi Arik Asherman again, who ran Rabbis for Human Rights for 21 years.
4: In 2015, there was a coordinated with the army olive harvest being protected by the army. That's one of the things that, because of our High Court victory, you actually do see Palestinians being protected by Israeli soldiers to get to the olive trees during the olive harvest. Uh, This was underneath the whole string of outposts connected to the settlement of Itamar. So after the farmers left their grove, they turned around coming down the hill and they looked up and they saw settlers entering the grove and starting to steal outlets. And so we called the, the army, the army came and didn't arrest anybody, but they did push them out. But then from the next wadi over, we saw a fire had broken out. And I was trying to Contact the army again, not succeeding. And so I started heading up the Vadi um, with another volunteer and a reporter that happened to be with us that day. The, The volunteer decided he didn't want to go up, he turned back. And while I'm still looking at and focusing on the fire and seeing two settlers up there, or Israelis at least, quite far away. I was kind of blindsided by another uh, man. We had seen one person coming down and looking at us threateningly, uh, but I'd forgotten about him. And all of a sudden, there he was, waving his knife, throwing rocks. um, And it was, uh, of course, a very scary situation. Uh, And I'm trying to back off um, not turning my back to him, not just running away, but 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 facing him, backing off slowly, trying to you know uh, watch his moves. And then he goes after this reporter. What I told when it started, I said, "Get out of here! Just get out of here!" But he didn't, you know, because he wanted it all on film. <laughs> so I draw the attacker back to me. But it, it, I'm, I'm coming down a, a, now a steep incline, and I, and I, and I fall. And that allowed him to get on my back with his knife hand free. And you see in this video, is, is, his hand plunges down three times.
1: But he didn't stab the rabbi. He sort of fainted it. In the video, it looks like he uses the hand not holding the knife.
4: I mean, he, he could have murdered me. Had he chosen to do so, he, he somewhere in his heart, he was not a murderer, or at least not of Jews. And then he throws one more rock at me and, and runs away. I actually later met him in a kind of a restorative justice program. You know, he, he had had his, one of his best friends murdered in a Palestinian terror attack. In his mind, we were an existential threat. Um, to him and his family and his friends. Uh, that's part of what happens when you also have incitement uh, going on in this country against human rights defenders as that were somehow we're traitors, we're uh, anti-Israel, we're whatever. One of the most interesting things he said though was, I'm lucky this happened to me. Because it was a wake up call. I might have ended up doing something much, much worse if this hadn't happened. Uh, His family did move out of the settlement back into Israel proper. I know he's been done a lot of violence therapy. Uh, And I actually hope that he gets his life back in uh, the right direction. I mean, he was 17 when this happened. One of the things that Judaism teaches is that we can all change. And because we can, we're also obligated to change. That's what we call it, which is often uh, translated as repentance, but it really means to answer God's call, to make the effort to turn and a return to our true selves.
1: Two harvests have been described here. The first, a leisurely family outing in the fall, perfumed with the aroma of hot coffee and tomatoes over the fire. The second, a harvest reached only after passing through security barriers, accompanied by soldiers, and interrupted at the very least by an awareness that something could go wrong, but often accompanied by loss and violence. The olive harvest is coming up in October. This year, there are two new elements. First, the coronavirus pandemic.
6: All of us are living under coronavirus circumstances, and it needs special behavior.
1: And second. The fact that earlier in 2020, Israel threatened to officially annex the Jordan Valley in the West Bank. Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has since backed down for the moment. But in response to this threat, the Palestinian Authority is no longer participating in civil coordination with Israel. This means that the whole process of reaching certain olive groves and of coordinating schedules with Israeli defense forces...
6: The situation is more complicated than before.
1: In some stories, a tree or a forest are a backdrop to human drama, merely a setting. As Noga Kodman said, under the shade of the pine, even ruins can become part of such a background.
3: They, they become like part of nature, so it's, it becomes, like, pretty.
1: But here, trees are not a backdrop.
5: All this struggle, all these questions are embodied in this landscape of trees.
1: Irus Braverman again.
5: They just seem to just stand there innocuously, but in fact have been constructed in this landscape. They're questions.
1: Questions like the ones that Liotte Berdugo brought to her family photos planting that pine in the Jerusalem forest with her family.
2: Like, what appears in a frame, what appears in sight, um, who can be seen and who can't be seen, who is free of surveillance, for instance.
1: How is nature used to change who or what is visible, to tell a certain version of a conflict, or communicate the identity of a place? As biblical, as verdant, village or forest, empty, inhabited. Or as a representation of a human being, a child, a colonizer, a guard, an ancestor. A tree and its seeds, the forest waiting in the soil, can endure past a human lifetime, beyond memory, as Jonathan Katab said.
6: So they rise up as a witness to what used to be there.
1: Outliving and witnessing generations of conflict. If you know what to look for, sometimes trees don't hide the story. They tell it. This episode of Outside In was produced by me, Justine Paradise, with Taylor Quimby and Sam Evans-Brown. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is Central Top Root director. Thank you to Amit Gilutz, Varad Ben Sedan, Joshua Shkedi, and Eliana Passantin. We've posted a lot of additional materials on our website for this episode, including photos of Liat planting her tree in the Jerusalem forest, and Iyad and his family harvesting olives on his land. We've also shared an annotated transcript and links to more reading. All that on the episode post on our website, outsideinradio.org. That is also where you'll find a sign-up for our newsletter, and we're a production of a public radio station, a link to donate to support the podcast. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.